If we're resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can sing with David in Psalm 131. My heart is not exalted. My eyes are not lofty. I'm not consumed with things too great for me. Um, I'm resting in the Lord. Let's stand and sing 131a, My Heart is Not Exalted. That last phrase from Psalm 131 leads us into our message this evening. Trust in the Lord from this time forth, both now and forevermore. We're going to consider the perseverance of the saints. Looking first to John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30, and then to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. On page 929, you'll find chapter 17 of the Confession of Faith of the Perseverance of the Saints. Let's give our attention to this reading also. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called 
and sanctified by his spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability or the unchangeability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Amen. Many people suppose that true believers are able to fall through their own fault into shameful and atrocious deeds, to persevere and to die in them, and therefore finally to fall and to perish. That is a quotation from the sentiments of the followers of Jacob Arminius, which were uh, submitted to the Reformed churches in 1610. And uh, it is a position embraced by many today as well, that true believers are able to perish. This opinion, they claim, is supported by scriptural warnings against falling away, and examples in the Bible and in our own experience of people who negate earlier professions of faith. But a right understanding of Scripture and of experience suggests a different view. God's beloved children can absolutely backslide, can lose ground, can lose traction, can lose focus of Jesus Christ for a season. But those who finally fall away prove that they were not of the people of God and never were, as the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.19. God's children, by contrast, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. That's the thesis that the confession sets before us that we want to uh, consider under three heads this evening. First of all, the truth of perseverance. Then second, the reasons for the perseverance of the saints. And then third, the warnings given uh, considering the perseverance of the saints. So first of all, let's consider the truth of perseverance. Perseverance is a vital part of the Ordo Salutis, or the order of salvation that we considered some weeks ago from Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Whom God predestines, 
he also calls or regenerates, justifies, and glorifies. Glorification is the end of God's saving work. It is the realization of all of the work that he has begun uh, up to that point. And so perseverance is a vital part of the ordo salutis. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, and we could say including perseverance? If God has given us the Savior, Jesus Christ, shed his blood for his people, given us the Holy Spirit, how will he not preserve us to the end? That's Paul's logic. Or, or, or Peter's logic is this in 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. Those who have been born again have an inheritance that is imperishable. That is, it cannot be lost It cannot be taken away. It is, he says, kept in heaven for them. In other words, those whom God brings to new life by the Spirit have an inheritance with their name on it in the kingdom of God. When uh, Jesus says to the disciples, in my Father's house are many rooms, what he might have said is, and some of them have your names written on them, on the door, as it were, and you will live in that place. God guards these, Peter says, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The outcome of genuine faith is actual salvation. If God accepts a person in Christ, that person cannot be cast away Paul expressed confidence about the saints at Philippi in Philippians 1, 6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's confident of that. Of course he's confident of that. God who begins a good work finishes that good work. It is not possible for God to begin a genuine work of grace in a person and have God abandon his efforts. Remember, some a few weeks ago, we considered uh, that text in the Gospels in which Jesus calls us to count the costs, count the cost of discipleship. We can be confident that God counts the cost. He never begins a work that he can't finish. He never would set out, as it were, to build a tower that he doesn't have the funds to construct. And so the work that Jesus begins, he will finish. Those who are genuine partakers of grace, God will surely make pure and blameless at the day of Christ, Paul goes on to say in verses 7 and 10 of Philippians chapter 1. This was also the conviction of the Lord Jesus. We heard it in our text this evening in John chapter 10. Jesus says that he gives his sheep eternal life And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of his hand. What what, a a wondrous message. Now, of course, this this is quite different from the position of the nominal Christian who holds to some crass 
a version of once saved, always saved, which basically for many Christians today means that anyone who has any interest in God whatsoever will ultimately end up in heaven. What, what um, many um, churches teach today is basically the perseverance of almost anyone, almost everyone. It's not really the perseverance of the saints. It's the perseverance of people who have some remote interest in God. And so we hear at funerals that almost everyone is going to heaven because they have some interest in the Lord. That's not what this doctrine is teaching at all. The doctrine is teaching that those who persevere are saints, not in the Roman Catholic sense of having performed a miracle and having checked off, you know, the works of super erogation going above and beyond what God requires. That's not the concept of sainthood. A saint, though, is a person who is sanctified by the Holy Spirit and who's pursuing genuine holiness. This Reformed and biblical doctrine teaches that they will persevere. Those who are truly in a state of grace, who actually love the Lord, who diligently walk in his ways. R.C. Sproul said this, for good reason, we speak of the perseverance of the saints, not the perseverance of all who profess faith. God never promises that everyone who Uh, one time said a prayer or uh, made some commitment in a church or at a youth camp or has some uh, high thoughts of the Lord Jesus from time to time that they will be, uh, that they will persevere to the same, uh, to the end. In fact, uh, listen to how one writer frames this uh, distinction. He says, among those who hate Christ, the most... Some once professed to trust him. Among those who hate Christ the most, some once professed to trust him. His claims are so exclusive and his demands so pervasive that in the end, you must either give yourself to him completely or give him up altogether. There is no middle ground. And so this is very important for us to recognize. We'll touch on this a bit at the, at the end on the warnings connected to perseverance, but understand the doctrine here is well-named, perseverance of the saints, not the perseverance of those who have some generic interest in God. But the truth of the perseverance of the saints, we must believe, of those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, for whom Christ died, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that doctrine that they will persevere to the end is firmly fixed in Scripture as our forefathers, theological forefathers, who critiqued the position of the followers of Arminius make plain. But the, the, the question that we ought to ask ourselves then, second, is why do they persevere? What are the reasons for perseverance. So we understand that that perseverance is a calling that God places upon us. In other words, you must persevere. You must love the Lord. You must strive with diligence and the means of grace to, to, to love the Lord and to follow him in all of his ways. You must do that. But we also must understand that per, our perseverance doesn't depend on human uh, free will. Of course it doesn't. Our wills waver. Our choices violate our wills, even when they're right. 
the occasions for apostasy are many. Our enemies are strong. And as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, we are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment. Our perseverance does not depend on ourselves. Our perseverance depends fully on God. A hundred percent, our perseverance depends on God. Let's consider five reasons why believers can trust that God will preserve them to the end. Of course, these are not reasons that provide any grounds for presumption or carelessness or recklessness. These are grounds that believers in Jesus Christ can rest upon uh, for their preservation until the end. One, God's decree of election is fixed. Election is unchangeable. Otherwise, what are we talking about? What, what is election if it's not God's sovereign choice that he has made before we've done one good thing or bad, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9? Or listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are, who are his, and that is the foundation of our confidence. The Lord's, you know, f- uh, the, the, the foreknowledge of God is another way that we might speak about predestination or election. The Lord knows those who are his. He's always known those who are his, and he never changes what he knows. God's saving choice cannot be revoked. And so, Paul says, we persevere. He goes on to say in that same verse, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So here what Paul is saying, um, the Lord knows who those who are his. His, his, his uh, sovereign election is fixed. And so you depart from iniquity. God's decree of election is fixed. Number two, we, we have reasons to be confident of the perseverance of the saints because the Father's love is free and unchangeable. To those who come to God for rest and find grace in Him, He says in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. My love for you is free. It's everlasting. So I'm faithful to you because I love you. And that's the confidence that all who come to the Lord for refuge can know. The Father's love is free and unchangeable. Three, Christ's righteousness and intercession actually produce salvation. We know about Jesus' righteousness we know as we considered in previous studies that he, he came to earth with, with real righteousness to purchase a, a, a real people. He paid the price. But we also need to think about his intercession, his prayers on behalf of, of highly fallible people. Remember how Peter uh, was so uh, confident in himself that he would, he would stand and defend the Lord Jesus no matter what anybody else did. He said, I will stand with you even though I must die. And Jesus knew, of course, that wasn't so. He, w- he wouldn't, he, he, he would deny the Lord Jesus. But, 
But, says Jesus to Peter, I've prayed for you. Satan will try to sift you. He'll try to snatch you away. He'll try to uh, cause you to perish everlastingly. But I've prayed for you that you would not fail. And Peter persevered through tremendous heartbreaking failure like what we'll consider in a moment. But he persevered because of Jesus' intercession, his prayers on his behalf. By contrast, there's another disciple, Judas, who Jesus says in John 6 and John 13 that he was a devil, that he was the son of destruction. Jesus does not intercede for. Instead, he says about Judas's betrayal, what you are going to do, do quickly. Very different than what he says to Peter. He says to Peter, I will uphold you. And so what, what, what we understand here is that the different outcomes depend on Jesus' intercession. Jesus' intercession cannot fail. We, we see that in John chapter 17. He's praying for his disciples and those who would come to faith because of his disciples' ministry. And he says, I pray, Father, that they would not fail. And we believe that those prayers of the interceding high priest, Jesus Christ, will be answered. Christ's righteousness and intercession actually produce salvation. Number four, the Spirit abides with believers. The confession puts it this way, the power of the Spirit is so effectual, that is, that it, it produces results, that it necessarily retains us in continual obedience to righteousness. Now understand what the confession means by that. It doesn't mean continual in the sense of moment by moment, right? We have momentary lapses, but by, by, the, by the sentence that the Spirit retains us in continual obedience to righteousness, the confession means that we will continue to the end, faithful to the Lord. John Calvin put it this way, speaking of the Spirit's abiding presence with believers, the Spirit continues His grace in us to the last, so that inflexible perseverance is added to newness of life. The Spirit's going to continue working. He's going to continue abiding. And so to the gift of newness of life or regeneration, the Spirit adds inflexible perseverance. What a wonderful phrase. Perseverance is inflexible. It can't break. It can't change. It can't be reversed. The Spirit abides with believers. And then number five, and of course these aren't all that could be said, but the confession identifies these five reasons for perseverance, and that is, fifthly, the covenant of grace guarantees the salvation of God's children. If our perseverance depended on another covenant of works, like that which uh, God brought in, uh, brought Adam and Eve into, in the garden, if, 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 if our perseverance depended on a covenant of works requiring perfect and personal obedience, as we learned uh, in connection with the covenant of works in chapter 7, if, if, that's where we're, if that's the kind of covenant we're in right now, we're lost. Because we don't have perfect 
and personal obedience. We violate the terms of the covenant regularly. If we were in a covenant of works, God would have every right to say, this thing is violated, like a violated marriage covenant. It's it's null and void. But in the covenant of grace, we learned in chapter 7, section 4, Christ has bequeathed to us everything demanded by God. So the demands of the covenant of grace are provided by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In that sense, he's the mediator of the new covenant. He mediates for us. The covenant of grace guarantees the salvation of God's children. Now, obviously, God reveals his commitment to preserve us unto eternal life in order to comfort us so that we're not panicking from moment to moment, so that we don't have perpetual anxiety, wondering if we're going to make it to the end because of how we know our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. The Lord gives us this assurance for our comfort, not, of course, to excuse our laziness. In fact, to keep us diligent, Scripture speaks stern warnings against failing to persevere. These warnings are misinterpreted, we believe, by Arminians who assume that because uh, the saints are warned against falling away, that they are therefore able to fully and finally fall away. We believe that's not so, based on everything that we've said to this point. And yet those, those warnings are real and genuine. And so we want to consider, third, the warning connected to perseverance. While Scripture attributes to God the credit for preserving the saints, we have many good reasons to diligently persevere. Um, First of all this, backsliding or the act of falling into and remaining for a time in grievous sins is a real possibility for God's children. Right? And there are saints, genuine saints, I'm sure, sitting in this room right now, who would say, yes, it is a a, a genuine possibility. I've backslidden. I'm sure there are people in this room that could say that. It's grievous. We can grow lazy in our walk with the Lord. Satan, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, never grows weary in prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking seeking someone to devour. Now, if, if Satan never grows weary of prowling, then we may not grow weary either. The world is relentless in presenting opportunities to veer off the course in righteousness. There are so many off-ramps to the Christian walk presented by the world. So many opportunities to go off course. Some that seem innocent in the moment and some less so. So the world presents opportunities to veer off course. The devil's prowling around like a roaring lion. And we have a war within us. What do wars require if not perseverance? Stay the course. The army that fails to persevere probably loses. As soon as we neglect the means of grace the preaching of God's word, the celebration of the sacraments, our spiritual health begins to decline. Of all the backsliding saints you could ever meet, 
undoubtedly most began to backslide by denying the means of grace, by becoming infrequent in worship, not giving themselves wholeheartedly to listening to the Word of God, being disinterested over the celebration of the sacraments. When we do that, our spiritual health begins to decline. And understand this, backsliding is terrible. It's terrible. Right? We, we don't have the, the, the uh, conception of backsliding that uh, uh, certain groups have uh, where you can take a season in your teenage years and wander and decide to break all the rules of the, of the congregation and then after a time decide if you want to come back and all will be well. Backsliding is terrible. And there, there are at least three reasons that we could use to affirm that statement that backsliding is terrible. First of all, sinning believers induce God's displeasure and grieve his spirit. We heard from Psalm 5, didn't we? That God does not, um, he does not endure sin. He, he hates and he hates to look upon it. It grieves his holy heart. Now, of course, that means nothing to an unbeliever. You know, the idea of, of, of inducing God's displeasure and grieving the Holy Spirit, an unbeliever can say, who cares? Don't bother me if God's displeased with me. But God's children will avoid their father's displeasure at all costs. There are people in your life, I don't know if it's a, if it's a mother or a father or a dear friend or a fellow Christian, that, that you too would be so careful not to incur their displeasure because you love them and you know that they love you. You don't want to grieve their heart. Well, how much more should we be careful not to grieve the Lord through our backsliding? Second, backsliding is terrible because careless saints also hurt and scandalize others. Sin always inflicts collateral damage. You never sin alone. You never sin to yourself. Your sin, especially as a covenant member, will impact people around you. Will give other young people, perhaps, if you, if, if, if you were to be a backsliding young person, will give other backsliding people, the, uh, young people the excuse to say, well, so they're doing it too. Must not be so bad. I wonder if you noticed how many times as you read through the book, uh, the books of the kings, how many times the Lord says, well, it's 20 times, I'll tell you, that the Lord says about wicked kings that they caused Israel to sin. Like the sin of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. 20 times. He, he walked in all the ways of his father Jeroboam who caused Israel to sin. Now, in a certain sense, of course, Jeroboam didn't force anyone to sin, but he sinned. He set an example. He set up uh, places of false worship and invited others to sin, and they did. Sin always inflicts collateral damage. Careless saints hurt and scandalize others. And then third, backsliders harm themselves. Backsliders harm themselves. The confession rightly puts a, 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 a number of 
ways that we can harm ourselves in connection to backsliding. Sinners lose a measure of comfort. Sinners harden their hearts. And you know, a hardened heart doesn't listen to God, doesn't follow in God's ways. Sinners wound their consciences. And sinners incur temporal judgment. Now we've said that the Bible says that um, the saints of God, he will spare from the fires of hell by his grace alone. But he does not promise to spare us from the fires of this present age. We will harm ourselves. We will bring temporal or, or, or temporary, not eternal, but temporary judgments upon ourselves for our backsliding, some of which we can trust will scar us forever, cause us to walk with a limp forever, you might say, spiritually, or at least in this age, I should say. So the point here is that sin is an advantage to nobody, not to God, not to your friends or family, not to yourself. Backsliding is terrible. God gives us these warnings to urge us with this straightforward command, you must persevere. You must persevere to be sure that you will never be destroyed. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Right? Because those who are called and those who are elected will persevere to the end. So to confirm that, for your own peace of mind, you must be diligent. But as we are diligent, we must also remember that the way that saints persevere is not in their own strength. Be diligent. Don't be self-righteous. Be disciplined. Don't think that you're going to pull yourself up by your own spiritual boots. The way the saints persevere is not in their own strength. We fall and we fail, but we keep coming back to the cross. We keep coming back to the Lord Jesus, as we sang this morning, weary and worn and sick. Keep coming back to Jesus. This is the believer's motto. One of the hymns that we sing puts it this way. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are. My glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy, I shall lift up my head. Arrayed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, we can lift up our head. Not because of our performance. And, and so the Scripture says, if we could use Peter's words in closing here, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, that in this way, in the way of perseverance, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into eternal life, the eternal life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The saints will persevere. And in light of that truth, friend, you must persevere. Let's pray together.
Jesus, your blood and righteousness are our beauty, our glorious dress. And so in the midst of this flaming world, arrayed in your righteousness with joy, we lift up our head and come to you, those uh, who have failed and have fallen short of your glory, who have missed the mark time and time again, who may feel like we have no right to be called the children of God. Of course, we, we, we don't, aside from the merits of Jesus Christ. And so keep Christ before us and keep this promise of the perseverance of the saints before us as we strive to make our calling and election sure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn. Uh, Number 482 is based on Psalm 73, uh, a psalm in which the believer, a true believer, was uh, tossed around by doubt but looked to God in his doubt and in temptation and found confidence for his continued perseverance. Let's stand and sing 482.
God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.